These are days of settling, days of arriving. Every moment, actually, is a moment of arriving. Sometimes we're arriving and re-arriving. I think we begin to see the way in which our heart, our mind, lives in a state of potentiality. That our heart, our mind, has the potential for enormous busyness, struggle, agitation, aversion. And in reality, it is exactly the same heart and mind that has the potential for great clarity, for profound kindness, for a deep sense of inner balance. I think much of this path, much of this practice is really being mindful of what seeds we are cultivating moment to moment. In Pali, the word for meditation, bhavana, is to bring into being, to cultivate. And I think part of that is recognizing that in this life, we are always practicing something. It doesn't matter whether we're sitting or whether we're moving, whether we're still, whether we're active, whether we're speaking, whether we're silent. In every moment of our life, something is being practiced, something is being cultivated. And much of this practice is to move from the unintentional, habitual, impulsive practices of confusion into the more intentional and conscious cultivation of the qualities of heart and mind that actually bring confusion to an end and that bring struggle to an end. Clearly it requires considerable mindfulness, considerable inner listening and alertness to really have a sense of what it is that is being practiced in this moment. At times, this is a very retrospective awareness, isn't it? We get spit out at the end of some great mind storm or emotional storm, and we look back and we think, well, I was curious, that kind of self-inflicted confusion or that kind of sense of being lost or stuck. So we're always moving more and more, moment to moment, towards this this experiential investigation of knowing what is being cultivated, knowing what is being practiced. In this moment, in this moment, is it conducive to well-being, to happiness, to understanding, or does it incline the mind, incline the heart towards more more confusion, more struggle, more disconnection. This week we will be talking quite a bit about the Satipatthana Sutta and the instructions, the guidance of insight practice. And these are important kind of encouragements guidance to to listen to and to really examine how this applies in our practice. There are many different translations of the Satipatthana Sutta 
And my understanding is that most Pali scholars kind of look for coherence between the, the Chinese translations, the Sanskrit translations, the Pali translations, to find out actually what is really worth attending to in this discourse, which is such a pivotal discourse in the Buddhist tradition, such a pivotal discourse of awakening, of liberation. And when you look at the fourth foundation of mindfulness, often what you see is, of course, a whole series of many lists, you know, the six sense doors, the five aggregates, the four noble truths, uh, the factors of awakening, the hindrances. And what is suggested is that in this fourth foundation of mindfulness, there are actually two of these lists which are most, most significant to really attend to. And they are the listings of the hindrances and the factors of awakening. I think that's most of what I would like to focus on today because this is something really present, I think, probably in everyone's practice, is an awareness that there is a tension in waking up in our lives. What we see is that we live and we sit and we walk with certain intentions to be awake, to bring as much kindness, as much balance, as much understanding into our lives, to live in the light of our understanding of change and non-self. But we have in our life and in our practice a certain sense of intentionality. You've probably noticed how easily and how frequently those intentions get hijacked by forgetfulness, by habit, by impulse, um, and particularly by the hindrance factors. So we see that we're living and often practicing with this this, this tension to bring more wakefulness And the reality that that is just often forgotten or just seems to get lost. Now, we could look at that tension as a very negative tension. And when we hold it as a very negative tension, it tends to lead to a lot of self-judgment and self-blame and self-criticism. I was so mindless. I was so forgetful. I blew it again. I lost it again. I'm so this. I'm so that. We can also hold it actually as a very creative tension of recognizing this is the ground in which we practice. This is the ground not of only of our meditative life, but in a way this is the ground of the whole of our lives. So when we hold it as a creative tension, it invites not judgment or self-blame, but it invites much more investigation much more inquiry, much more kindness, much more of an endeavor to understand this tension rather than to feel it's something that we should just overcome or get rid of or somehow not even experience ourselves. So the factors of awakening we're cultivating, you know, calmness, attention, equanimity, perseverance, you know, joy, we're cultivating all of these factors of awakening but we're often cultivating them in the midst of the hindrances. 
Now, the hindrances, of course, it's very easy to think we know all this, and when we're old students, our eyes tend to sort of glaze over, you know, and roll up and think, well, you know, this is, I'm an expert in the hindrances. What do I have to learn about the hindrances, you know? I know it all. I could give this talk. Yes, we could all give it. Um, but there is something different about actually really appreciating that the hindrances are not something to get over. They don't disappear because we become a good meditator. These are the most kind of primary mental states, emotional states that pervade our lives. They are not just meditative experiences. This is the stuff of insight practice. This is really the stuff of where we learn to be awake. Of course, in the Satipatthana Sutta, these hindrance factors also appear in the third foundation of mindfulness. There's this crossover of these mental states. The hindrances obscure. They veil. They cloud our capacity to see what actually is. To see what is actually present. When our capacity to see what actually is is veiled or obscured, that is when we tend to move into the realms of reactivity. This shouldn't be happening. How do I make this go away? I should have a different experience. I don't like this. Now, most of us, when we look at the sort of development of our meditative practice, we are really seeing that there's this endeavor to move from what I would call applied attention to sustained attention. So applied intention is something where we're remaking, reinstituting intention moment to moment. The intention to be awake, the intention to be mindful, the intention to be calm. And we're applying those intentions often in the midst at times of inner chaos, inner waves, inner struggles, inner confusion. We make the intention to be here. And then we have the experience and we see how often it happens that those intentions are hijacked and undermined by many different factors. And usually those intentions are hijacked and undermined by psychological and emotional habits. They can be habits of fantasy, of daydreaming, the habit of being lost in our stories and narratives. And actually what we often see in our practice is that the emotional and the psychological habits seem to hold more strength and more power than the intentions we have. It's a simple reality. So we become forgetful of our intentions and we get lost somewhere. So we renew the attention and we reapply the intention to be awake. It's always that process of coming back, coming back, coming back, which many people find is actually what their practice is asking for. Now the work of developing intention, of course, rests upon that willingness But it's also a sense of capacity to begin again. We're developing effort, motivation, interest, commitment, patience. And what we see with practice is that the the growing ability to sustain intention and attention, 
because these are totally interwoven. We see with practice a growing ability to sustain intention and attention. So the periods of forgetfulness begin to shrink a little. There's not, we see the periods are just simply being totally lost in habit, begin to become a little bit more transparent. And there's just a little bit more ease in staying with the intention and staying with the attention. So we're making this journey from applied attention to a more sustained mindfulness, a more sustained attention. It's not always linear, by the way. And that's something very much to appreciate, you know, that we can feel, yes, we're really going along this journey, and then we have, like, a total morning of forgetfulness and heedlessness, and it's very easy to imagine, well, you know, that all meant nothing, and I'm not getting anywhere. But it's not always linear, but it's a growing sense of capacity, inner capacity, a training not only for our practice, also a training for our life. But what we're seeing in this movement from applied attention to sustained attention, that for most of of us it is a journey through a range of mental states that have been familiar to us the whole of our lives. And certainly in Buddhist teaching and Buddhist psychology, these mental states are often referred to as hindrances or veils, clouding our capacity. So we all know the list of the hindrance factors. Sensual desire. This is a big one. It's the hungry mind, isn't it? It's the hungry eyes, the hungry ears. It's not sensual appreciation. It's sensual desire. The craving for sensual desire, aversion. This is you know, probably not an unfamiliar encounter. It's also a big spectrum word in frustration, judgment, impatience, you know, blame, shame, resistance, denial. It's, it's a very big word. Sloth and torpor. Not just the kind of honest fatigue that many of you will experience in the first days of retreat where you get some rest and then you're more awake. And it's not that sloth and torpor is a dishonest fatigue. It's much more that it's a mental state. It's, it has such a range, you know, from uh, this just kind of fuzzy mind, you know, to numbness, to uh, kind of low-level mood almost, you know, the sense of disconnect. We have restlessness and worry, agitation and worry. Experience it in our body, we experience it in our mind. The waterfall of thinking, the almost allergy to stillness, the kind of doing that we all seem to sort of fall into as default mechanism, you know. There's so much to do today. Um, And then, of course, there is doubt. Just the forgetting of what we're doing the forgetting of why we're here, the forgetting of the meaning of of the path that we're cultivating. 
Now, people can create very unhelpful attitudes towards these mental states. And you know something that I see is that the more experience many people have and more in meditation practice, the more unhelpful does their attitude become towards the hindrances. You know, people new to meditation, they, they run across these mental states and there's, you know, a sense of, you know, sometimes a kind of agitation and panic, you know, what do I do with these? But I think with more experienced meditators, there's a much more an unhelpful attitude, which is a kind of indifference towards them. And a sense that, oh, you know, I'll just sit them out. You know, you know I'll just sit them out, you know. They're, they're, I know that if I kind of stay here for some time, you know, they'll, they'll get weaker and then my practice will really begin. Um, sitting them out, I would suggest, is not a good response to the hindrance factors. It is true that, you know, sometimes there's a feeling that we do sit them out because, you know, we keep showing up for a few days and retreat and the hindrances, you know, we're more awake, we're kind of maybe a little bit less restless and we think, oh, yeah, I sat them out. I don't think that's what's happening at all. I actually think that what often happens is that we simply feel more in control of conditions, you know, we feel more safe here, we feel more secure here, we kind of establish a new meditative routine, and we just feel a little bit more in control of conditions. And so the hindrance factors tend to kind of abate a bit. Notice in life the moments when these mental states arise most strongly. They often arise most strongly in moments when we feel that we are not in control of conditions. When we don't, when we're not in control of the, the kind of order of our life or the experiences of our life, that they, these mental states often arise as a kind of reaction to feeling out of control, to feeling that we don't know what's going on, that we're unsure, and that's often when you see the hindrance factors arise. Now, of course, in the Buddhist teaching, the, these mental states are not something to get over. But they're deeply embedded psychological and emotional habits to be understood because what they do is to suffocate and to deny awakening. And in reality, we would probably say, it's really only a fully awakened being who is completely free of the hindrance factors. We could say also that the whole of the path is concerned with understanding and uprooting the hindrances. And why does the Buddhism so much emphasis? Because these five mental states are said to be the five manifestations of greed, hatred, and delusion. These are the ways that greed, hatred, and delusion manifest or kind of move through our consciousness is in the form of these five mental states. It is also very important, I think, to envisage a time in our practice and in our lives when the hindrance factors no longer arise. This is a realistic aspiration. So in looking at these mental states, the Buddha often used the simile of looking at your reflection in a, in a pool of water. So sensual desire is trying to see your reflection in water that is colored with dye. Aversion is like trying to see your reflection in a pool of water that has been heated to a boil. 
that sloth and torpor is like trying to see your, fle- your reflection in, in water that's covered with algae, you know, or muddy. That restlessness and worry is like trying to look into water that's been kind of stirred by strong winds, so that it's all choppy. And the presence of, of doubt is like trying to see your reflection in a very dark pool of water. I think we can probably relate to these kind of metaphors in our own experience. And the difficulty with the hindrance factors is that they often have a sort of combined uh, codependent interaction. You know, it's not like we just get them in. Life would be a lot easier, wouldn't we, if we just had one at a time? You know, okay, aversion, you know. Oh, that's all right. How do we deal with aversion? Or, oh, you know, agitation, worry. Okay, you know, snapshot picture here. But instead, what we see is how much these are actually so interwoven, you know, that there's aversion and then there's doubt and then there's doubt and there's agitation. You know, agitation and doubt might set us off into craving for sensual desire and reading the instructions on the fire extinguisher. You know, it's all kind of like it's, 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 a, big, it's a big weather system, isn't it? It's not just one at a time. The Buddha often used other similes to describe what it's like to be free of these psychological patterns. And to be free of sensual craving is often likened to be free from debt. To be free from being in debt. It's a very interesting kind of comparison. I mean, you know what it's like, well, or you can imagine if you don't know what it's like if you've ever been in a situation of being in debt, how your attention is just constantly consumed, you know, drawn outwards to, you know, know, your debt, essentially. The amount of thoughts, the kind of sense of dislocation inwardly. And sensual craving is like this. It's like being in debt to the world. It's like this sense of of tie, of, of imprisonment. Being free from aversion is often likened to a kind of recovery from illness. You know, ah, that sense of being able to recover from being very ill and that sense of wellness and ease. Being free from sloth and torpor is often likened to being released from prison. See, the lot of this theme of imprisonment runs through the hindrances, I might say. To be free from restlessness and worry is to be liberated from slavery. And to be free from doubt is like having the ability to cross a dangerous desert safely. Now when we speak about the five hindrances as being the five manifestations of greed, hatred and delusion, it's also important to even go a little bit further back and to acknowledge the ways in which greed, hatred, and delusion are um, the manifestations of confusion and ignorance. So when we talk about uprooting the hindrances, we're really speaking about a very big domain of practice and understanding, and we're really speaking about uprooting the causes of suffering and of bringing suffering to an end. So just kind of breaking them down a little bit and just looking at how these winds kind of move through your day, 
Sensual craving, it's not at all a repudiation of sensual pleasure. You know, and I think it's so important to make that distinction because I think there's too much of an attitude, particularly in Western practice, that sensual pleasure is something to be slightly mistrustful of. You know, that it's bound to turn into craving, it's bound to turn into clinging, you know, and somehow my practice is more noble if I'm just suffering every moment. A sensual pleasure, of course, is a great ally in the practice. We see all the moments of loveliness in our day. The sun coming through the windows, and the sparkle of the dew on the grass, the taste of good food, and a good night's sleep, a body that feels well. These are all domains of sensual pleasure. Actually, you know, they gladden the heart. They allow more access to energy. They bring a sense of inner contentment and ease. And they are an important part of our practice. Um, And even the conscious cultivation of them is an important part of our practice. You know, mindfulness is not a defensiveness, closed down, contracted space. If it is, I wouldn't always think of it as being good practice. But the craving for sensual pleasure, of course, is something very, very different. It is a sense of, of hunger, the appetite that can never be answered. There's never enough. You know, and, and of course, in, often in Buddhist imagery, the, the image that is used is the hungry ghost image. You know, the, the, the image of beings who move through the world with these, these very, very big distended stomachs and these tiny, tiny mouths. And so that no matter how much they're kind of grazing their way through the world, there's never a sense of being able to be full. So the craving for sensual pleasure, you know, is really locked into often very deeply embedded belief systems in insufficiency. You know, not enough. You know, not enough everything, you know, and not enough me, you know, that I'm not good enough, I don't have enough. This sense of, of deprivation. And basically, sensual craving is a searching for happiness, but of course a searching in all of the wrong places. There's a wonderful Tibetan saying that says, by the time you've set yourself up with a good benefactor, a comfortable place to stay, the right clothes and perfect food, you've already fed the demons before you've begun to cultivate the Dharma. But we see those winds in our day. It's almost a habit, isn't it? It's almost a habit of hungriness. Have you noticed at the sense doors? You know, I was recently teaching at, at a, a university in Seattle and we were having a residential silent retreat in this space, you know, and universities are full of stuff, you know, and they're really big on notices. Mind you, Gaia House is not too bad either, but they're really big on notices, you know. And, and, and people, you know, I ask people to look at how they used, you know, the habit of sensual pleasure. And people just notice how much time they spent, like, studying the notice for an apartment to rent that they have no interest in. And yet studiously knowing everything about it, you know. Studying the notice for a course, they have absolutely no intention of undertaking, means completely irrelevant to their life, but they know all about it. And it's almost like the habit of hungriness in the sense doors can be so embedded, as you notice when you... I mean, like, I know there's one bathroom in Gaia House that has 11 signs. 
you know, and the reason I know that <laughs> is because I read them all. <laughs> and I actually didn't need to read them all. You know, I actually could navigate my way in and out of that bathroom without any of those signs there. And, you know, I consider myself a reasonably competent person. You know, so this was indeed within the realms of my capacity. But it's almost the habit of hungriness. If you notice when you move through the house, you know, how easily the eyes are... Are particularly the eyes drawn to this and that, you know, and, and we find ourselves just in this state of of wanting, and it's almost a habit also of distractedness, isn't it? It's a common, like a habit of distractedness, and we need to be so mindful of this because, in a way, it perpetuates a sense of discontent. The habit perpetuates a sense of discontent. It perpetuates a kind of agitation, you know, where I'm always on the prowl. You know, I'm always on hungry at the sense doors. I think the antidote to sensual craving is a lot about contentment. It's a lot about contentment. About really beginning to just sense inwardly, sense of being able to rest in what is that there is enough in this moment, that everything that is needed for sensitivity, for care, for mindfulness, is actually already present. And there's something about going underneath also the habit of distractedness, which I think is a manifestation of this desire for this sensual craving. I think it's often manifested in the habit of distractedness. There's something about being able to step back from it, you know, being able to step back from the hunger that I don't need to, don't need to read all the tea boxes, you know, I don't need to read everything. I I need to be a little bit mindful of how my eyes and my ears and my body is engaging with the world as a kind of, you know, beggar at the sense doors or at a place of being able to receive the moment as it is, to be touched by it. Because the antidote to this habit of distractedness and sensual craving is not to close down. It's not to become defensive. It's not to pull our blankets up over our heads and try and disengage from the world. This is an insight practice. It's not a practice of defensiveness and protection. So it's actually having much more curiosity of how our sense doors are engaging with the world and recognizing are they being a servant of a predominant mental state in terms of the hindrances or are the sense doors being used as a skillful means to gladden the heart, to cultivate greater spaciousness. Contentment is a powerful quality to cultivate what in this moment is actually lacking? What in this moment is actually lacking? And calm and insight are very much the antidotes to sensual craving. The Buddha put it so simply that the sources of joy and sorrow live within our own hearts and not within the world of conditions. This is at the heart of the teaching of liberation but it's something so important to remember that the sources of joy and sorrow live within our own hearts and not within the conditions of the world. And to be mindful of the mom- all of the moments in our day when we might be prone to externalize 
the sources of joy and sorrow. This is not a cause of judgment. This is not a cause of, you know, to think of ourselves as some terribly bad practice. But all those moments when we see ourselves externalizing the sources of joy and sorrow, these are kind of open doorways. These are doorways when we can reclaim that understanding and to come back to our own hearts and our own minds and to really have that curiosity and that investigation to explore them as they are in this moment, to befriend them. Otherwise, so much of our life and indeed so much of our practice can be spent looking for the ideal conditions, the ideal moment, the ideal meditation. And I often think of this as postponement practice. You know, that there always looks to be a better moment to be awakened, doesn't there? You know, once I've got fixed that and got rid of this and done this, you know, I'm finally going to arrive at that elusive ideal moment in which I can be really awake. Strange how it doesn't arrive so easily. Now, ill will, aversion, you know, we experience these in our lives, in our meditation, in our relationships, in so many moments. Irritability, annoyance, intolerance, judgment, inflicted upon ourselves, inflicted upon the world. Such a powerful habit to understand that so clouds our capacity to see things as they are. It so clouds our capacity for kindness, for compassion. Again, it's placing unhappiness in the wrong places. It's placing the source of unhappiness in you, in, in the weather, in, in other people, or it places a source of unhappiness in our own self-image. You know, that I am the source of my own unhappiness. Actually, my image, my belief system of myself may be the source of that unhappiness. But we see that the very energy of aversion is to turn away from, to disconnect, to shut out, to create distance. We see the very energy of mindfulness is to turn towards, to connect. And it is so clear, I think, to all of us that the antidote to aversion is kindness. Not necessarily in reverting immediately to metaphrases or to whatever, you know, to some kind of way of trying to make aversion different than it is. But our capacity to befriend aversion is very critical in our lives. What does it mean to turn towards aversion, irritability, annoyance with kindness? To learn how to stand near to this mental state how to stand next to it, to have a dialogue with it. Take your aversion for a walk. You know, put it on the cushion beside you. Have a dialogue with it. You know, what is this asking for? What is it kind of telling us about our, our obscurations, about our capacity to not see things as they are? Is it a place of happiness? Have we ever noticed that aversion and peace, aversion and happiness, aversion and well-being don't seem to co easily coexist? But one doesn't kind of liberate oneself from the hold of aversion by having aversion to aversion or by having judgment of aversion. If we are ever going to practice the art of befriending, the art of kindness, the art of compassion, it is going to be in relationship to aversion. 
in relationship to ill will. Never mind the difficult people in our life. Never mind the difficult conditions and situations in our life. This energy, this habit pattern, surely we all see it as one of the most obstructive habit patterns in our lives. Many ways the most toxic. But learning to, to meet ill will with kindness. It is suffering. It is simply suffering. Think about the domains of sloth and torpor. Boredom is a big one. Boredom and sloth and torpor are very interrelated. Have you ever noticed that meditation practice is often not that exciting? You know, kind of like one breath follows another, you know, one step follows another, one sitting is followed by walking, followed by another sitting. I mean, we're not that much into events here. You know, it, it, we just don't kind of like do events. You know, this is the biggest event. No, second biggest event of the day. The biggest is lunch. But here's the second biggest event of the day. You know, we don't do events. We're not interested, really, in events. You know, we're not interested in engaging your attention through intensity or through flooding the sense doors or through providing entertainment. And, you know, this is very countercultural because most of our culture is actually has a huge addiction to intensity and a huge addiction to events. So often when we withdraw the whole kind of conditions of events and intensity, you see how prone the mind is to sink into a sense of boredom, nothing's happening. This is good news that nothing's happening. Could, this could be really good news. It could be surrounded with the reactions of boredom or sinking or sloth and torpor. Or we could actually really see that in, in letting go of this preoccupation with events that we allow life to happen. We allow life to reveal itself, both outwardly and inwardly. And we're cultivating our capacity to embrace that life with its unpleasantness, with its loveliness, with its more neutral tones. We're learning to cultivate our inner capacity for wakefulness rather than to have our own wakefulness in this life stimulated into being only through events or intensity. This is a huge cultural shift. It's often a huge psychological cultural shift to actually reclaim our capacity for inwardly generated wakefulness rather than outwardly provoked sense of a wakefulness which tends to be very transient and very unreliable. We see how much our attention is stimulation-based. And as long as our attention is stimulation-based, you know, the bigger sound, the bigger sight, you know, the bigger body experience, as long as our attention is stimulation-based, we're going to be very prone to sloth and torpor, because we're going to be very allergic to the absences of big stimulations. It will provoke, actually, often, sensual craving. Notice that sloth and torpor often arises more around this realm of experience that lives between the pleasant and the unpleasant. We don't tend to sink so much into sloth and torpor when we're paying attention to some very 
you know, unpleasant body experience or difficult mind state. We tend not to sink. We tend not to sink into sloth and torpor when we're really enjoying something. <laughs> but we get into this more neutral, more, more middle ground of neither particularly pleasant nor particularly unpleasant. And this is when we tend to disappear. Because it feels like there's nothing happening. But life is happening. You know, in, in many ways, my my understanding of some of the deepest uh, deepest domains of mindfulness is to understand eventlessness. To learn this is a place of ease, because events are kind of often construct. They're mostly constructions of the mind. They're mostly constructions of the mind. Um, Restlessness and worry feels like the difference, you know, the, the opposite of sloth and torpor, because that's the busyness, the worry, you know. They're kind of leaning forward about lunch, you know, about my next sitting, about, you know, my work period, all the, the events in my life. And mostly, I think, with many people on retreat, you know, restlessness and worry is much more a psychological experience. Just being caught in that kind of waterfall of thinking, and actually what we see here is that more sustained attention, more sustained concentration is what is really needed. Breathing in, calming the restlessness. Breathing out, calming the restlessness. Breathing in, calming the anxiety. Breathing out, calming the anxiety. The last of these of doubt is, of course, not about skeptical doubt. It, doubt is very different than investigation. It's almost like we're waiting with doubt. We're waiting for something to prove its worthiness to us before we fully commit to it. We're waiting for guarantees of something before we actually set our hearts upon something. It's a very difficult way to live, this sense of waiting waiting for our practice to prove its worthiness to us before we commit ourselves fully to it. It spreads out into many areas of our life. Doubt is not blind, but it makes, uh, what it does create is ambivalence in commitment. I think there is something in this practice actually where we, we work on this kind of leap of confidence. We don't wait for something to prove its worthiness, not our practice, not our path. We commit to it. And then actually, it is what allows the worthiness to arise. Mindfulness is very concerned with understanding these mental states and their power. We need to be mindful of the state of our mind. It's helpful in the beginning of every sitting to take a moment to pause and ask yourself, what is the state of my mind? the beginning of a walking, when we hear the lunch bell. What is the state of my mind? And when we look underneath the hindrances, we do see the craving, the aversion and delusion. When we look underneath that, we see the confusion. And we understand that this is the ground of our practice, that the hindrances are not bad news. They're actually an invitation to understanding, and they're actually an invitation to awakening. Thank you.